0: Your views, your news, your limerick today with Joe Nash on Live 95.
1: Award winning author, Daniel J. Mooney, known as Dan Mooney to most of us, including when he's doing rugby commentaries here on Live 95. His latest book is a thriller hit the shelves after launching at uh, O'Mani's booksellers in Limerick City at the end of October The 14th storm is set in the year 2043 in an uninhabitable world where the climate has finally changed and Dan is with me Good morning Before we get into the meat of this Daniel J. Mooney yeah, also I, known as Dan Mooney. Yeah. What's the story?
0: I mean, like, yeah, everyone will know me as Dan Mooney. That's that's how I go. Yeah. That's how I'm more common. Oh, I don't yeah. do much commentary as Dan Mooney. I've written two novels as Dan Mooney. But uh, the publishers, because my first two novels were contemporary fiction, and this is dystopian fiction, they wanted to differentiate... Uh, between and it, like, it doesn't bother me. They're both my name. Like Daniel J Mooney is my name, and Dan Mooney is my name. So I don't. I didn't really care. Presumably, there's a rationale for this in marketing or in publishing or whatever it might be. But the publisher said, "Look, because this is so different from what you've written before, we want to to differentiate." So um, Daniel J Mooney instead of Dan Mooney.
1: Now, the publishers probably don't realise that you are from Limerick. You live in Limerick. You are of Limerick, yeah. and. I think we can assume <laughs> that people are going to be shouting at you from time to time. Oh, Daniel Giammoni!
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, all, that's already happening. That's, uh, oh, he's getting notions about himself now. See, with his initials, what's your man off with the J? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's already happening. Um, um, so typical, isn't uh, it? Yeah, yeah, getting accused of having notions because someone has <laughs> yeah, used yeah. a middle initial.
1: Don't be a success
0: anyway, whatever you do. <laughs> but the thing is,
1: you are unbelievably a busy Dan if you don't mind if I yep. call you Dan um,
0: sorry yeah, no, yeah, no I'm no. at I it mean, I'm like, at it like, at, at this point you know, like how long uh, how long <laughs> have I been you know it's, it's too late to change it now it's just Dan that's what it is <laughs> oh, stop stick but, whatever you want to the front of a book like but you're stuck in so much yeah um, I've got a lot of interests and I mean it's. It, it, I don't want to call uh, hobbies because a lot of the stuff that I do is stuff that I love and I love it like very very passionately I I love rugby. So I love commentating on rugby. I love theater, so I I love being involved, uh, you know, with the college players and with the torch players. Uh, torch would be kind of uh, home turf for me mostly. Um and I love writing, so that's to call them hobbies or interests would be to to play down just how much I enjoy doing them, but also because I love them. I I, I can't walk away from them. I can't just stop. Doing those things, I love doing them. They're things I enjoy doing. But yeah, I'm tired a lot. So, well, you are. And the thing is, one thing you certainly don't do as a hobby is you're an air traffic controller. Yeah, that's. Um, I don't think I could do any of the other stuff without that because the job is air traffic control is shift work, and the shifts allow me the the time off and the flexibility to be able to do the other things. I occasionally I get um, I'll go to the the school, the training school for ATC, and uh, I'll work nine to five down there training people in how to be your traffic controllers or in refresher courses for controllers and that kind of thing and I'm exhausted like working 9 to 5 Monday to Friday is like I don't know how people do that whereas the shift work thing that I do which is you know the mixture of days and nights gives me the time off to be able to go to rehearsals or commentate on matches and go down and watch Young Monsters and sit down with the laptop for 4 or 5 hours at a time maybe 2 or 3 times a week and get some writing done and yeah if I didn't have that job I wouldn't be able to do any of that how young were you when you realised you had a creative tendency? Yeah, like I don't know, nine, ten. Like I, making up stories was something I've I've always been doing. It was a kind of a common thing. Um, I, I think I'd probably embarrass Eva Ferguson a little bit with this, but um, Eva was um, a neighbour, you know, neighbour of mine growing up, and uh, she started uh, a kids-run newspaper when we were about maybe 10 or so. It could have been 9, could have been 11. I, I can't remember back that far. But it was called The Party and Screamer. And, uh, <laughs> and I wrote... Brilliant. I, I was asked to write a story for it. And yeah, you know, I, I believe that she, she probably intended that to be kind of a newsy type story. I ended up writing a, a piece of, like what amounts to fan fiction about Tutankhamun. Um, the curse of Tutankhamun because I was obsessed with it at the time and that was my, that was my big thing. So I've been like writing creatively since I was about nine or 10 years old and it, it's always been a thing. And I got into expressive arts theatre when I was 12 that like it's always just been a part of, of what I do.
1: Because you've done media, you've done radio, you've done journalism, but it, it feels like you were always headed in a more creative
0: direction. Yeah, I like that. I, that's absolutely. There was I was in college. Um, I'm working here um, while I was in college, and aiming at uh, journalism as a job in journalism. But but I was still telling friends of mine that, that I'd be inviting them to the Oscars. When the novel that I write gets adapted into a film and then wins an Oscar for best original screenplay and well, so th- that's me off the list anyway, slacking you off about Daniel J. Mooney. I don't get to go to the Oscars. <laughs> no, I mean like this is obviously highly unlikely. Well. But um but, but yeah, I like the the jokes were still even at a time when I was uh, aiming at a career in journalism, I like there was always the impulse to write creatively and to, to, to do novels as opposed to doing um to doing kind of non fictional stuff. What's it like living in Dan Mooney's head then? Yeah, great fun. <laughs> yeah, look, it, it it's busy, hectic in here. There's a there's a lot going on a lot of the time, um, and then sometimes absolutely nothing going on when it all shuts down. Um, but yeah, it there's you know there's a lot of notes on my phone um, for ideas for things. There's a lot of conversations with other creative people about ideas and expanding on ideas and. I find that's tremendously helpful. I like to get it out of my head is that, that's the start of the process. Because once it's, you can have an idea all you want to, but it, it just rattles around in there until it's either written down or or vocalized. So there's a lot of conversations I'd have with other artists um, and creative people. You know, I talk to, to to Liam O'Brien and Emma Langford quite a bit about ideas and and get them just so that I can vocalize them, so that now they're out there and I can start actually working on them. So, yeah, get, like when they're in the head, they're, they're nothing. It's just another thought. It's kind of a nebulous thing. Yeah. I mean, I bore people by going on about the creative community in
1: Limerick. because so I think we're so lucky here that we have you know, some ridiculous talent, frankly. Yeah. Yourself, very much included. You can't say that, but I can. (laughs) Um, And also, I love the fact that because it's a relatively small community, there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of chatting about ideas. There's a lot of mixing of the professional and the great amateur
0: theatre, for example, that we have all happening. It's it's, it's fantastic. And like the music scene, the 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 likes of uh, Fail and Agrena going on in the city was brilliant and getting bigger all the time. There's live music back in a way that it was kind of it vanished. And this is anecdotal. I don't have like stats for this, but I remember being like 18 uh, and actually 17, hoi, 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 and going into the likes of McGregor's Bar and Quinn's Bar. And it was live music, and this was a common thing. And up and coming bands were doing their thing. And then it sort of vanished in the Celtic Tiger era. Bars were became, becoming super pubs, and the live music thing sort of went away. And it's making its way back now. So you see gig venues being used. You're looking at like the likes of the record room downstairs in the commercial and you've seen live music in Charlie Malone's bar and in you know, alternative venues being used Mother Max is not a music venue and yet you still see gigs and events going on inside there because there's so much music and there's so much creativity going on that we need the spaces to be able to put it all because it's it's massive it's a growing scene, it's cool.
1: And I mean I know that you love the bones of Limerick Dan and a lot of people have made the point Liam O'Brien comes to mind prominently, but not just Liam, that we need to find a way, and we're probably getting there, of allowing people to be creative professionals while staying here.
0: Yeah, that's you, I, yeah, we're still a, a distance from that. There, I mean, there are exceptions, you see people who who are, who are doing it and doing it well. Uh, again, and there's like there's two examples in, in, in Emma Langford and Liam O'Brien being able to, to, to do the creative stuff that they want to do and to, to to entertain and to tell stories and to to be a part of the fabric of that creative uh, aspect of Limerick and 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 still live on that alone, um, but it can like that's extremely difficult. It's a tremendously difficult thing to do, and people tend to overestimate massively, massively overestimate how much artists are paid for giving gigs and that kind of thing. So uh, the, the amount of money that I've made off of three novels now is simply not enough for me to have lived on for the last seven years since the first one came out. And remember, you know,
1: those first two, I mean, they travelled. You know, yeah. it's a very difficult thing to have people picking up your book and buying it in the States as well as here. But that happened
0: for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. the first two both got um, deals in North America and The Great Unexpected, which was my second one, also translated into German, Czech, Spanish, Catalan, Chinese, and there's one other and I can't remember. See, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So you should be minted. No you just this is it. Everyone massively overestimates the amount of money you get out of these. So in your contracts you royalties are only achieved after a certain amount. Once first of all you have to pay off your advance, whatever that may be. And then the royalties start at a like really low, twelve point five percent and work their way up depending on sales and that kind of thing. So you're not like twice a year I get a royalty statement and, and sometimes it's not it's not high enough for me to to, to meet the bar to actually file an invoice for it. Because oh, yes. you haven't sold enough books in that six months to to be able to do that. So that's just what it is. Okay, so I mentioned climate and climate change. Uh, the
1: 14th storm. What is this about?
0: Um, okay, so we're, yeah we, we're launching it tonight. Tonight is the official launch. This has been delayed and... Um, it will be in our from half past six for anyone who wants to pop in and uh, and say hello and get a book and listen to. I'm the glad you corrected chat. me on that. Sorry about yeah, that. no, that's because it was scheduled. So this is the thing: it was scheduled for the 25th of October. There was ah, a okay. whole, there was a whole thing, and then it got delayed, and there like paper shortage, and there were storms actually happening at the time. which <laughs> yes, you know, yes. kind, felt kind of ironic. Um, the The concept behind the book is that uh, by 2043, the storms that we get at the winter are now so strong and damaging and so fast one after another that there's no point in naming the individual storms so they just name the season the season of storms gets a name and then for you know six, eight weeks these storms absolutely batter Ireland so most of the west of the country has been given up Um, there's no government anywhere in the west there are local governments that do their own thing but they are not under the remit of the government of Ireland so Uh, most people have fled to the east where it's a little bit more sheltered from the storms uh, coming off the Atlantic and they live in the lee side of hills and settlements that are refugee settlements and have turned into kind of semi-permanent and the government in a kind of an attempt to slake the thirst for revenge amongst the people has set up a department called the Department for Environmental Justice and the agents of this department uh, find people who denied climate change was coming prior to the first storm season and they execute them. So their job is hunting down climate change deniers and killing them. Okay. Yeah. It's right then. Yeah. It's Jack. I think there's there's a couple of concepts at, at work in it that are that are a little bit um there's a certain inevitability, I think. You know, you hear stories like we just heard on the news that Greta Thunberg is twenty years old being arrested for a public order offence for trying to, to highlight what what's going on here. Do you see Kids taking part in the in the Friday afternoons, in the, the the climate action strikes, and that kind of stuff. In in ten years' time or fifteen years' time, when those kids are adults and they're watching the world falling slowly down around them, they're going to be really angry hmm. because at a certain point they tried to warn people and they tried to do something about it. Nobody listened, and eventually, inevitably, there will a moment will arrive where there will be a catastrophe. And when that happens, people are going to look around and go, "Who is to blame?" Look, you know
1: some of this is weather, but some of it is climate and climate change. And I heard um, an expert say this week that we are facing what he described as a conveyor belt of storms this winter, yeah, because of where the jet stream is positioned, and also because of the warming waters. And that's just the way. And you know, it was very interesting to me. You know, people talk about weather and climate and the difference, but I would say three months ago, you know, midsummer. I heard experts say we will get mm-hmm. many storms this winter. And I went, really? How can you? But, not, and yeah. so what you are talking about obviously is at the extreme end and fictionalized, yeah. Yeah. but you would wonder by 2043, what will the West Coast, including Limerick,
0: be like? and this is it, like science fiction so this, this is a kind of a new genre I'm referring to it as cli fi so it's climate change fiction it's science fiction with the added component of the, the climate change stuff and all science fiction is, is is extrapolation you take a concept like that where you just ask what if what if this becomes this and the thing with the cli fi in regular sci-fi that that could take the shape of technology so what if you had a machine that allowed you to travel faster than light and now we've got Star Trek or Star Wars uh, and you can use that for technology, for sci-fi stories but in climate change fiction what you're asking about feels to a certain extent inevitable because what you're asking about is these storms what happens if there are too many of them but there is a time where where there will be too many of them there's a certain inevitability about that and do you think that the imminence
1: of this and the fact that it is being talked about constantly now Mm -hmm. and that we are seeing certain changes. And I'm sure there are lots of people listening to this show who are going, well, I'm trying, you know, in my own individual way, I am
0: trying. Do you think it's too late? So, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm I'm reading the same as anyone else and, and, and then writing based on what I'm reading. But uh, there, it's an interesting thing you're saying that people will say I'm trying and, and point at themselves because a lot of the dialogue around climate change is, is personal. We're being asked to take personal responsibility for a problem that's global and the biggest offenders aren't you or me or individual people. It, it, it's industry, and and it, and it's and no one is bothering to look at these people or sanction these businesses because the economy, you know, quote unquote, the economy, we can't possibly do that. Um, and so, a lot of the responsibility for this is being put on individuals. You have to do more for the climate. The problem with that is that when a moment arrives, and there will be a moment, so there'll be some catastrophic landslide caused by. You know, huge storms or or a building will collapse and a lot of people are going to die. When that happens, and you've asked people for so long to take personal responsibility, those who have done something are going to look around at the people that they believe didn't do something and go, "Your fault." Mm. Because when you put the personal responsibility for climate change action on individuals, then at some point you can then the inevitable question that gets asked is, "Well, if I did my bit, and we're still here." who didn't do their bit. And that is kind of one of the concepts that's explored. Um, The
1: 14th Storm by Dan Mooney or Daniel J. Mooney, just so you know (laughs) where it is. Um, I presume you'd love to see it on the screen.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's a lot of um, my my writing process is, and this is something I didn't know um, until recently and kind of in discussion with other writers about how they do things. Uh, A lot of my stuff would be quite visual in the sense that I... I'm imagining a picture and then trying to paint that picture and trying to present so it, it, it can be a little can feel a little bit cinematic uh, from time to time the, the the story and some of the images and some of the, the, the aspects of
1: it. Dan you're a very funny guy I mean I know that you know you've got great sense of humor great comic timing so is that in your future?
0: Um, I I'd like to go back to that. I mean, so the great unexpected, which yeah. you know on on the surface seems like a really dark dark story, is actually it's comedy and and uh, it's a black comedy. But I loved it. I loved writing it. I liked being able to laugh. Um, and you know they you know people shouldn't laugh at their own jokes, but I did like as I was writing through being there certain moments in it and the the overall broad stroke comedy stuff of it is very very good. Um, it was very enjoyable to do and I do think that yes I would like to, to go back to, you know I'll write another contemporary fiction and it will probably be another black comedy and then it'll be Dan Mooney and then I'll write another dystopian book and it'll be Daniel J. Mooney again but yeah I I, I don't um, someone asked what, what, why the change of direction and I said I didn't feel like it was a change of direction I have, a certain, I have a an idea for a story pops into my head and I go ooh I like this and then when a, at a certain point I will write that story. Whether that's a dystopian fiction or a romance or a cop noir fiction. It could be anything. I I don't feel like the direction... I don't have a plan for a road I'm going down. I have an idea for a story and then I write the story and that's it. Has marriage changed you? (laughs) Um, No. Um, There's no... You just People are people. You are what you are and uh, you are what you do to a certain extent. So I'm working writing was something I was always going to be doing anyway. Part of who I am and my personality is in those pages and in those words, and um, that's just me. And finally, a rugby question. Oh, yeah.
1: I was at a UCD versus Young Monster in Dublin. Oh, yeah. On, uh, Saturday.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, very enjoyable game, uh, tight contest on all of that. Um, a couple of things occurred to me. First of all, there was a very good crowd there from both sides. I mean, Young hmm. Munster would always. Uh, but from the other side too and then Munster do you think that we're entering an era and I'm thinking too of a full house at the FAI cup final on Sunday Mm. of
0: sport being more connected and more local again yeah well I definitely think I, I don't know enough about um League of Ireland Soccer I'm a, I'm a member of Treaty United and I get to any games that I possibly can get to but again the schedule that I have is a little bit jam packed um, but rugby I know and All-Ireland League rugby has been growing in terms of the, the quality of the game that's on offer like the, you know all Division 1A there's Division 1A matches that you're watching in All-Ireland League rugby that are better than Pro-14 matches uh, depending on who's playing and, and that kind of stuff. But the quality has grown, and with it, I think, uh, at the top end, in particular of the men's game, um, and I watch women's rugby as much as I watch men's rugby, I'll watch the a lot, but the, the the men's game has become coached to a point that the margin for error is so small that often top-end men's games can be quite dull. Because you're talking about percentage rugby and it, 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 whereas when you're watching All-Ireland League rugby, you're watching players when the margin for error is not quite as small. So errors happen, but that becomes part of the excitement of the game. So people are connecting with local rugby and, and club rugby again in a way that they weren't before because it's more exciting to watch than 23 behemoths who come onto the pitch and the ball in playtime is 24 minutes out of 80 and it's slow and it's ponderous and the scrum has to be reset 42 times and all of that stuff. That's losing people uh, out of the game, whereas the club game is picking back up bit by bit. And I really enjoyed at the UCD
1: uh, Young Monster game on Saturday, the referee and the touch judges making decisions and moving
0: on. Yeah. It yeah. Was, you know, it yeah. just It's so refreshing. The game, the game, the game speeds just up that. Get moment. on with it. You know what I mean? I, I was on stage. I saw, so we had the matinee for, um, for the college players. So I, I missed it, but it was being streamed. So I had. When I wasn't on stage, I was down in the dressing room watching it, I thought Young were, were deserved to get more out of that game than they did. Yeah, I would say that, obviously. You would. The 14th Storm by Dan Mooney.
1: Daniel J. Mooney, just to check it out. Very best of luck with the book. Always great to chat to you, Dan, and uh, you're always welcome here, alright? Thanks, uh, We'll pop some of the video up and we'll pop the podcast up of uh, this as well, and the launch is this evening. This evening, half past six in on my honey's Come on down. All-